Thank you, Matt. Good morning. Uh, quick follow-up from last week's sermon. So last week we did the apologetics of how can we know the Bible is historically reliable and trustworthy. And we had a bunch of people say, hey, is there a neat little handout, you know, that I could take that information home? So one, we want to remind everybody that the notes from the sermon and the slides, they're always on our website. Every week when a sermon gets uploaded, the notes, the, like, the slides get uploaded as well. So if you ever want to find that for a message, you can go to our website and find it there. But if you notice this week as we came in along the one wall, there's now a wall with something that's very easy to take with you, hand to a coworker, hand to a friend who's asking these questions, providing that information. We want to make sure that we're continuing to respond to you guys. And, and you know, when you raise a good point like that, yeah, okay, let's make this available. Um, but then this week we're going to continue. We're going to be in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. And this is a really incredible passage where Peter is providing examples of the principles that he's just talked about in this section of his letter. It raises, there's one or two verses in there with some interesting questions that it'll be fun to dive in and see what is he getting at when he says that. Uh, but if you would, please, out of respect for the words of, of God, please stand with me as I read 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the never-ending well that it is, that we can come to it again and again and again and learn from it, learn more of who you are, learn more of of your design, your will. Be reminded of truths that are so beautiful and rich in our lives. We thank you for the privilege it is to have your word, to open it together and desire to know you. So as we continue to worship in this way, as we submit ourselves to your word, would you lead us, would you teach us, instruct us in this time. Use this act of worship for our holiness. We trust you with it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Like I said, this passage is really fascinating because it includes a couple different things. And what I want to start with, where, where the verses start with verse 18, it starts with really the beautiful core of what we preach. It starts with the heart of what we profess to be true. It starts with a reminder of something that should fill the Christian heart with joy and encouragement every day that we wake up. When we talk about Peter's letter and this theme of victory and trials, think of verse 18. Let me reread it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I mean, that's it. That's what this boils down to. That's what, when you distill it, that's what is at the heart of what gives us life. That Christ, the righteous one, died for me, the unrighteous one, that I might be brought to God. You talk about victorious. You talk a message of hope, 
a message of encouragement. Peter's writing to people who have been removed from their homes who are fleeing for their lives, and he's like, hey, don't forget, this is true. This is what drives us every day. And this is something that I guess most Christians would say, yeah, of course I know this to be true, but I want to make sure we really stop and think about this and think about the practical implications for this in our lives and think about what our posture should be in response to a Lord who did this for us. There was an author one time and he was writing about this idea and he said this, and I'm guessing what I'm, the, the quote I'm about to share with you, it might shock some of you. And you might be tempted to bristle at it at first, but we're going to, because I know the first time I heard it, when I read it, I actually closed the book and had to think about it. Because I was like, that steps on my, that's offensive. That's insulting. And then I closed the book and I thought about it and I was like, oh, he's spot on. He's writing about this and he said that if you were the only person on the planet, Jesus still would have come to die for you. And I was like, hey, amen. I like that. And then his next sentence was, and you would have been the one to crucify him. And I was like, no, I don't like that. And so maybe you hear that and you're like, no, I don't like that. Not me. Surely not me. I wouldn't have been the one to crucify Jesus. Let me remind you about the author of this letter. Peter, who professed to Jesus, Lord, everyone else will reject you and abandon you, but not me. Not me. I would never do that. And in that same moment in history, Peter cursed out someone and swore an oath that he had nothing to do with Jesus. So don't have an overinflated sense of self-righteousness. We cannot have this at the church. We have to recognize that when it says Jesus the righteous died for the unrighteous, you could plug your name in there. I could plug my name in there and it would fit perfectly and appropriately. That apart from Christ, I am nothing but filthy rags of unrighteousness. That on my own, apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit, my best efforts are still filthy rags of unrighteousness. I mean, consider these passages. This is Romans 3, 10 through 18. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. If God is not leading this service, if God is not leading this body, all have gathered, together we have become worthless. This body of people is worthless apart from Christ apart from the leading of the Holy Spirit, apart from the sovereignty of God. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's us. That is, that's our biography. That could be our obituary. I mean, that is the summation of who we are apart from Jesus. But it doesn't end there. And that's what Peter reminds us of. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring us to God, to reconcile us to God. That beautiful truth 
that beautiful redemptive reminder that should fill our hearts with encouragement every day. Paul gets at this in his letter in Romans later on after chapter 3. He says in, in chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is painfully and acutely aware of his own unrighteousness. And then he goes on to the answer. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become our sin, so that in Jesus we might become righteous. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Uh, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen. I mean... I had a debt of sin and unrighteousness that fully earned me death. So did you. And Jesus took that debt. Jesus paid that penalty. Jesus satisfied God's wrath. Jesus satisfied the just need for a penalty for sin. The righteous became the unrighteous on our behalf. He took our unrighteousness on his shoulders so that we could stand before God justified. It's incredible. I love this verse in 1 Peter. R.C. Sproul is talking about this and, and he quotes society when we say, why do bad things happen to good people? And R.C. Sproul says, they don't. That's only happened once in human history and he volunteered for it. We are unrighteous. Jesus took that. So that for those who believe, those who profess Him to be Lord, those who have repented and confessed, we stand before God as the righteousness of Christ. I mean, that blows my mind. And so the question, the application of that is, does that reality permeate your life? Does that awareness drive your day-to-day -day behavior? You know who my favorite person to worship with? I, I confess I have a favorite person to, to worship with, to do Bible study with, to pray with. And I don't get to do it with him very often. His name is Billy McCune. He's here in Ohio, and he has overdosed more times than medically he should be alive. And then Jesus got a hold of him and transformed his life. And so when Billy opens the Bible, when Billy prays, when Billy sings a worship song, when Billy lives every second of his life, it is with a painful reality awareness of how broken he was apart from Jesus. 
So Billy grasps the depths of unrighteousness. And he grasps the lengths that Christ went to for him. So every second of his life is an outpouring of a heart that wants to praise the God who did this for him. I love it. I love the passion and the zeal that Billy brings to every second of his day for the Lord. Christians, are our lives defined by an awareness that the righteous one died for us, the unrighteous one? I mean, think about that. Really stop. And I know we're spending a lot of time on this, but we need to. We need to understand this. Because if I wrap my head around that the unrighteousness that I had in my own life was dealt with, because Jesus took it upon himself, I would not say things like, "Eh, you know what, I don't really like this song, so I'm just going to sit back and chew my gum. I'm too busy to read the Bible. I have other things to do with my day. Evangelism, man, whatever, that's for other people. I know the pastor talks about it, but I'm still going to brush it off. No, if I understand that the righteous one died for my unrighteousness, the only possible response of my heart needs to be, Lord, have everything. You get my best. You get my all. Whatever obstacles pop up, it's okay because I am yours and you are sovereign. I give you everything. Be encouraged by this reminder. On those hard days, on those bad days, on the days when you want to quit because you can't stand your coworkers, on the days when everything breaks at the house and you're looking at the bank account knowing you don't have enough to cover the repairs, on the toughest times when your family wants nothing to do with you, be encouraged by this. Friends, please. Remember that you stand before God in the righteousness of Christ, that this is victory, this is joy, even in the hardest things. Please be encouraged by this. But please also be driven by this truth to offer God an appropriate sacrifice of our lives, an appropriate offering of ourselves as we give Him our everything in response to what He did for us. It's an incredible verse with so much richness to sink our teeth into. And I love it. And then he goes on and he he talks about what Jesus did. And he talks about Noah. And he gets to two verses that, if we're honest, they can be kind of confusing. You read through it at first glance and you're like, wait a minute, what's he talking about? Jesus died for us that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So this this verse in this passage, this is just a really fascinating example of getting to study the Bible and come to it intellectually curious and pursuing an understanding. And there's two primary understandings, there's two primary schools of thought with this verse. I know which one I tend to lean towards, but I honestly, I think you can make a solid biblical case for either understanding of this passage. And the other important lesson here to take away, even in a macro sense of studying scripture, is we will occasionally come to verses where Tim is like, hey, you know what? Based on these other biblical passages, here's how I understand this verse. And I'm like, oh, interesting, because based on these other biblical passages, here's how I understand this verse. And Tim and I come to a different understanding. And we say, cool, you're still my brother and I love you. Not, well, I'm deleting you from my phone and I want nothing to do with you. 
Like, this is a great example of where we can be theologically humble and say, you know what? You have your reasons for thinking it means this. I have my reasons for thinking it means this. That's fine. Now, like we've talked about numerous times, there are passages where, no, you've got to arrive at the same understanding. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the only way to the Father, right? You, we don't get to have a different understanding of John 14, 6. But a verse like this, passages like this, this is a really fascinating example of being humble in our understanding and seeking to understand Scripture. So I want to lay out both, both possible explanations. And then you study, you decide, you figure out what you think. So the first possible explanation is that between his crucifixion and resurrection, when it says that Jesus went to the spirits in prison and spoke to them, between his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus went to demons bound in the abyss and proclaimed his victory to them. He let them know, hey, I'm victorious. I, I'm coming to you in prison, in the abyss, in chains, and I am proclaiming victory. This is one possible understanding of this. Uh, pastors, theologians, authors, Christians, anybody who thinks this, they'll point to 2 Peter 2, 4, where it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So first Peter, or 2 Peter 2, 4 lays out that demons, fallen angels, there are a portion of them who have been bound in chains and kept in a, a dungeon, an abyss, a prison, until the final day of judgment. Uh, Jude 1.6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So you can point to different Bible passages to support this one and say, hey, this means that Jesus went and proclaimed victory to demons bound in the abyss. Okay, I see where someone who thinks that comes from biblically. There's another explanation. There's another understanding. That word spirit, where it says Jesus spoke to the spirits, it's pneumasin. And it can mean supernatural beings. It very frequently is used to refer to supernatural beings like angels or demons. But Hebrews 12.23 shows us that this word can also be used in reference to people like you and I. And so there are those who look at this passage and they say, okay, based on Hebrews 12.23, we think this is describing the Spirit of Christ preaching to the sinful people of Noah's day who rejected Noah's message of righteousness and perished in the flood. And so now they're in a prison of temporary death awaiting that eternal day of judgment. And for this, you would go to 1 Peter 1.11, which we already looked at in this series, where it's talking about prophets from the Old Testament. It says, they were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And then 2 Peter 2, 5, if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, and that word means a preacher, a proclaimer. So when you look at those two passages, we see that the Old Testament prophets who preached a message of righteousness, preached righteousness of God, were doing so led by the Spirit of Christ. So now when Peter is saying the Spirit of Jesus, Jesus in spirit went and preached, proclaimed to those in prison, they're talking about the Spirit of Christ in Noah proclaiming a message of righteousness to the unbelieving world around him. And I look at that explanation and I say, okay, I see where you're coming from biblically. Those verses make sense. And so this isn't a point to get hung up on where we need to divide over. Rather, this is a beautiful example of a willingness to study Scripture, seeking understanding, and then coming to a place of mutual respect of, 
okay, you know what? This isn't a theological foundation where someone who thinks that, well, it was Jesus preaching to the demons in the abyss is not going to get into heaven. Or someone who thinks that it was Jesus preaching to people during, through Noah is not like, this is not something that should divide us. This is rather a lesson and an example of a willingness to study scripture and still respect and love one another. And so I think it's fascinating even for that side lesson that it gives us as Peter's writing. And then he, he talks about another issue that raises a question. And so I want to look at what he says in verse 21. He says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this verse raises a very interesting question. And I've engaged with people who will point to this verse to justify their belief, their position that baptism is required for genuine salvation that you will not get into heaven if you are not baptized. My opinion, based on scripture, is that that's not accurate because that's not what this verse is talking about. We need to understand a later word in this verse. But to first address the question of, wait a minute, baptism now saves you. So is baptism necessary for salvation? No, Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. Now let me say, baptism is hands down the most beautiful thing I've ever done in my life, and that includes marrying my wife and being present for the birth of my daughter. Baptism is still the most beautiful thing that I've experienced in my life. And we're doing a baptism service coming up on September 11th. So if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ and you have not been baptized, I legitimately can't think of a reason why you wouldn't follow Christ's example. And if you want to get baptized on the 11th, come talk to us. We'll talk more about baptism on the 11th and the beauty of it. But it is not necessary for salvation. And so to understand what Peter is saying here in this verse, where he says baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience. What does he mean by that? Well, he's using the removal of dirt for a body as the metaphor of removing sin. So he's getting at, look, baptism, the act of baptism does not remove your sin. It does not purify your soul. It does not impute the righteousness to you. That was the confession and the repentance and the belief. He says, as an appeal to God for good conscience. That word appeal, see, when we hear appeal, we think of request. You know what I mean? If, if I'm in the court system and the judge makes a ruling that I don't like, I can appeal it. I can say, hey, reconsider this, reevaluate this. I am making this request of you. I am making an appeal. But this word appeal, it actually means pledge. It's getting to a pledge, a promise, entering into an agreement of terms with another party. It's agreeing to certain conditions. So what he's saying is baptism saves you as an agreement to the terms and conditions that God has established. It's that public declaration, that external proclamation of our internal heart, of our belief of, yes, I have entered into the terms and conditions. You know, when you update your phone and you click, I've read the terms and conditions, the number one lie we all tell? That's what it's saying when he's saying making appeal. 
MacArthur describes it this way. What saves a person, because think about it, he uses, he uses the example of Noah in the ark. And so what he says is, what saves a person plagued by sin and a guilty conscience is not some external right, but the agreement with God to get in the ark of safety, the Lord Jesus, by faith in his death and resurrection. It's that acceptance of, it's that belief of, it's that agreement of, yes, Lord, this is the only way I will get to heaven. I take your word as true. I believe that. We have entered that ark of safety that carries us through the water. That's what he's saying when he says making an appeal. Walvert and Zuck in their commentary describe it as this. As the flood wiped away the old sinful world, so baptism pictures one's break from the old sinful life and his entrance into new life in Christ. Peter is challenging the believers and encouraging them to have the courage to commit themselves to a course of action by taking a public stand for Christ through baptism. The act of public baptism would save them from the temptation to sacrifice their good consciences in order to avoid persecution. For a first century Christian, baptism meant he was following through on his commitment to Christ regardless of the consequences. Baptism does not save from sin, but from a bad conscience. So remember that Peter is writing to people who are literally facing losing their life and their property because they have declared Jesus to be Lord. I mean, I personally don't know anyone who got fired from their job because they were baptized. I don't know anyone who went to apply for a home loan and the bank said, yeah, uh, have you been baptized? Yep. Nope. No money for you. You don't get to live in a house. But Peter's writing to people who that baptism, that public declaration that I believe Jesus is Lord, they were risking everything to say that. There were going to be severe, serious consequences for saying that. And so Peter is reminding them, do this as an appeal to a good conscience, as a pledge, as an agreement, so that you won't be tempted to later rescind, to back off, because things get hard. And remember again Peter's story, what we looked at a few messages ago, that Peter is writing about things and situations that he's gone through and messed up. He's been there. He's had public outcry against him for being a follower of Jesus, and he backed off. And so he's reminding people, he's like, now look, make that public declaration. Hold yourself honest. Hold yourself to it. Do this. It matters. It makes a difference. And it's great to understand what Peter is getting at, which helps us understand the beauty and the privilege of engaging in baptism today. Consider these passages, Romans 6, 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him into baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Galatians 3, 27, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Colossians 2, 12, Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Hebrews 9, 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve God? the living God. And so earlier I said that if you haven't been baptized and you're a believer, come talk to us about a coming service. But if you're here and you're a believer and you've been baptized, 
remember the appeal, the pledge that you agreed to. Remember the terms and conditions. This goes back to verse 18. This goes back to what we've looked at numerous times through 1 Peter. That we make a covenant with God. We enter into a covenant with Him where He says, Hey, here are the terms and conditions. The only way you get to heaven is through Jesus. I paid the price. I took care of the penalty. I offer you salvation. If you confess He is Lord, here is what you are agreeing to. You are agreeing to a life lived for Him. You are agreeing to a surrender to Him. You are agreeing to submitting to His sovereign authority. So for believers, consider Hebrews 9 again. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Just like that reminder of the righteous for the unrighteous should be at the forefront of our hearts as an encouragement and also a challenge, baptism should be at the forefront of our minds for believers as we consider this, as we consider these joys that I've been buried with Him in baptism, so I've also been raised with Him. How awesome is that? I mean, I got to declare to the Lord and to the world that, God, I am raised with you in newness of life because of what you've done, because of what you made possible, not because of my own works, not because of my own effort. I got to celebrate that with friends and family. It's beautiful. But it's also a pledge. It's also an agreement I made with God. Okay, if you're raising me to newness of life, I agree to what you have set out. I will live like you call me to live. I will live to serve you. Baptism reminds us of all of these wonderful things. And it's great. And it's encouraging. And it's a reminder of victory. It's a reminder of victory over death. Everybody is so afraid of dying. So afraid of dying. Christians, we shouldn't be. Paul said to live is Christ, to die is gain. I was reading a missionary's account one time guy over in India, and they literally, I've shared this story with you before because I love it. When they go to villages in India, they literally dig their graves before going into the village. Because cultural customs will dictate that depending on where they are, the regions they're in, if, if the village kills them for preaching Jesus, they'll just throw their bodies by the side of the road. But if the graves are dug, they'll at least drop their bodies in the grave. So they literally dig their graves before they go into a village. And, and someone from the Western church one time asked this guy, like, why do you do that? I mean, if you're literally like, well, good chance I'm going to die today. Why would you go into that village? And the guy said, because there are two options. They profess belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they join me in heaven. Or they give me a fast pass to meet Jesus. He was like, those are great options. And the Western church was blown away by this idea. So baptism reminds us that we don't have to be scared of death. We don't have to be scared of the grave. My grandpa loved Billy Graham's quote. We read it at his funeral. Billy Graham said, Friends, one morning you will wake up and you will read the headlines, Billy Graham has died. Do not believe them, for in that moment I will be more alive than ever before. Baptism reminds us of this. It's, uh, I mean, it blows my mind to think about that. 
And Peter reminds a church facing persecution like you and I can't even wrap our minds around. I mean, we really can't. We can't imagine a mob showing up at our door, dragging us from our home, maybe killing us, maybe allowing us to live, but seizing everything we own because a lie was told about us. Peter's writing to a church, literally living this out, and he's like, hey, remember the newness of life. It's, it's awesome. Because what Peter is getting at is how he finishes this section where I want to wrap up. Verse 22. Talking about Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus is sovereign. I mean... Look, I'm not, I'm not downplaying the trials we face. I've talked about my brother being sexually abused and the, the trauma that that was for all of our family. I've talked about the betrayal that Adeline has gone through, that the friends of, of the church, people in the church, not this church, but people in the church who have betrayed my wife. Like, I'm not belittling the pain of these things. Peter is not dismissing the pain of these things. What he is reminding the people facing pain of is Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is the ultimate authority. Jesus is the ultimate power. Rulers, authorities, everything is under him. This is the Lord who we have said, I stand with because I have been baptized like you to be raised in newness of life like you. The analogy I used a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, that we all got a kick out of was, you know, would you be intimidated walking on a court to play one-on-five if it was just you? Yeah. Would you be intimidated if you walked on the court with LeBron James beside you? Like, no. This is that times infinity. So whatever trials we're facing, whatever persecution we're facing, whatever pain and suffering we're facing, we have this beautiful reminder that our Lord is sovereign over it. That his power is not diminished in any way, shape, or form. His authority is not changed in any way, shape, or form. No matter how much we might not like the administration, no matter how much we might not like laws that are being passed, or potential laws that are being talked about, no matter how much we might not like the current climate, Jesus' sovereignty is unchanged by it. And so we take heart in that. And we take encouragement in that. And we remember that this is the Lord who has saved us. This is the Lord who has said, you stand before God righteous because of me. It's why in Hebrews it says we can walk into his throne room with confidence, not arrogance, not self-sufficiency, but confidence because we walk in there with the righteousness of Christ. That's awesome. This is the reminder for believers that we see in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. So this week, as we consider these things, let's read Colossians 2 and Hebrews 10. Two beautiful chapters that unpack this, that talk about this, that will remind us of this. Look for the themes of the message as we continue to learn how to study the Bible. Continue to apply the Acts model. How does this passage lead you to praise God, to adore Him? How does it lead you to confess how does it lead you to thank God? How does it lead you to make requests to God? And then the imitate Jesus part is simple, because there are three people here. There are unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever, 
and you don't understand why we would get baptized, what this means, if you want to talk more about unrighteousness and righteousness, why you need that, please don't leave without talking to me. That's the one category of person here. Second category of person here listening online is a believer who's not been baptized. So if that's you, imitate Jesus. Get baptized. Talk to us about the 11th. You think you don't need to? Okay, I'm, I'm not here to judge you. I want to talk to you about it. I want to have a conversation about it and point out why I got baptized. Why I believe you should too. And then the third category of person is a believer who's been baptized. So to imitate Jesus, just remember that you have been raised to serve God. That you have been raised to serve God's kingdom. To advance his kingdom, to proclaim his kingdom. To preach his kingdom, to make peace. To see the lost world reconciled. It's awesome. I love 1 Peter 3. I love how he concludes this section of his letter. Let us be encouraged by it. Let us be challenged by it. Let us conform to it. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the example Christ set. We thank you for the encouragement of this. We thank you for the reminder that you as the righteous one died for us, the unrighteous one. We thank you that we have been raised to newness of life. We thank you that we have the opportunity to serve you. Lord, forgive me when I neglect that opportunity, when I neglect that pledge. Forgive us as Community Bible Church when we neglect the pledge we have made. Have mercy on us. Lord, we ask that you would lead us in being a holy church, that you would lead us in being holy people wherever we work, factories, schools, hospitals, at home, whatever it is, God. May we be holy servants of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.